Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. A landscape that is uneven to the mountains themselves, that sense of place is is unusually strong. It's not unique. We share that with lots of other people, but in our sense of the mountains, uh, ours is is a distinct kind of thing that does hold us together. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place perspective but always Appalachian and don't forget Will tonight's episode is powered by SOAR shaping our Appalachian region if you're a entrepreneur out there especially in eastern Kentucky check them out Appalachian meets world we're back it's Will and Neil what up brother what's going on down there man you know fall is in the air my friend fall is in the air Beautiful change of leaves over the last couple of weeks. It's pretty remarkable. What causes leaves to change colors, scientist? Uh, that's a good question. I have no idea. The wow, te- you have like 17 science degrees. You the, technical, the, the technical definition, I don't know. Then it has something to do with... Uh, it has something to do with cold weather. Like chlor- the amount of uh, something in the leaves is drastically... Oh, I mean, I, I'm not the scientist here. I mean, you are. I'm just, chlorophyll? I'm just a bit. Yeah, yeah, it's the amount of like chlorophyll or something in the leaves gets drastically reduced because of the shortened day. Wow. Look at Neil. I mean, you didn't know that. Come on, man. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Come on. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I mean, let me ask you this. Did you go, please tell me you did, did you go to the Kentucky Rising concert? The short answer is no, but there's Tuesday a reason. Night. Tuesday night yeah. is hard, right? Tuesday night, man. I was at the football field till 8 o'clock. I, I heard it was a heck of a show, though. Yeah, no, I've heard nothing but good things about it, seeing all the coverage on it. I mean, how could it not be a heck of a show with that lineup, Will? No kidding. Plus, they brought out Ricky Skaggs. They brought out Patty Loveless. I don't know who else came, but I heard Patty Loveless tore the house down when she sang, You'll Never Leave Harlan Alive. Oh, can you imagine? Can you imagine being in Rough and Patty Loveless singing that song? <sighs> I wish I was there. I really singing, do. Singing that verse going west to Pineville. Yep. Can you imagine how loud we would get? <laughs> I can hear it. I can hear it now. She sang that verse. Oh, I'd have been screaming for sure. I heard at the end they had a jam session too. To uh, I think they sang Paradise. You know that that one song where yeah. it says Muhlenberg County. Yep. Man, I w- I would like to have gone. Like you said, it was a heck of a lineup. Chris Stapleton put it together, and the three headliners, really the three people that were supposed to do the concert. Chris Stapleton, Tyler Childers, and Dwight Yoakam. Really, it was those three. Yes, they brought some more. But I wanted to ask you this question, Neil. You know that game, and we'll keep it PG. This is not exactly what it's called, but marry, kiss, or punch. You know that game I'm talking about? 
You're going to have to elaborate a little bit, Will. It's really called marry, like you marry someone, marry, blank, or kill. So we're going to play that game with Chris Stapleton, Tyler Childers, and Dwight Yoakam. But we're going to keep it PG, so it's going to be marry, kiss, or punch. So of those three, who would you marry, who would you kiss, and who would you punch? This is really weird, Will. <laughs> I would punch Dwight Yoakam. Oh, wow. I would, uh, I mean, man, if you made me, I guess I would kiss Tyler Childress. And Mario Chris. I mean, if any, I had, any reasoning like, behind that? Do I not have a choice here? I mean, that's just weird. It's the bro. game, man. Yeah, I know you've heard of that game, but you've never heard of that game. I like to win games, not. Not feel defeated <laughs> at the end of one. Well, I think I would marry Childers. And then I would probably kiss legend Dwight Yoakam. I guess I'd have to Deep. punch Stapleton. Yeah, you Although punching Stapleton w- would probably be a little bit tricky situation because I, I have a feeling he'd punch back. I have a feeling that if you punch Stapleton, that it would be like when somebody flexed on Kobe and he didn't even flinch. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a feeling it'd be similar if you punched if you punched Stapleton, he, he wouldn't even react. <laughs> and head would turn and he would stare you down. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right about that. But just getting back to the show, that they raised two million dollars for the relief efforts in wow. Eastern Kentucky, which is pretty incredible. I actually yes, think sir. you can stream it, continue to stream it for 20 bucks. I think it's only available for about 48 hours after you purchase it. But so, so I'm assuming they will continue to raise some funds for Eastern Kentucky. Awesome cause, awesome concert, awesome lineup. Hey man, if you, if that's really true and you can stream it for 20 bucks and you got 48 hours to watch it, you know, who's going to be watching it on their TV. Johnny, Johnny, you know, you know dad's streaming some oh, music yeah. tonight. As soon as he hears it. He's on he's on his TV trying to figure out technology. He <laughs> concert. It might be one o'clock in the morning when he watches it, but he just <laughs> you, know, you know what he'll do? He'll tape it on his phone, and every time you see him, he'll say, "Let me show you something." Hey, hey, you want to hear this? You want to hear this? Listen to these guys. The only <laughs> thing heard might, the only thing that might stop him from doing it, Will. You know the answer. What? It's twenty bucks, dude. Oh yeah, twenty bucks. Yeah, twenty bucks. That's true. Man, if, it was, if, it, if it was like five, he'd, he'd probably do it twice. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. <laughs> okay, I, I had a, a couple of Appalachian news items to uh, talk about real quick. Good, let's hear it. The USDA just announced $110 million worth of grants. You know, we talked about mental health care last couple of episodes, but this is to improve health care in rural towns. I think that's towns maybe under 10,000. I'm not not quite sure, but this is nationwide, not just in Appalachia, but this will go a long way in Appalachia. I think it's focused on 208 rural health care organizations to help them expand services in rural areas. I think that's an important thing that USDA is, is doing, obviously, they realize the struggles that rural areas have in regards to access to health care. That's a big deal, man. That could be really important in uh, Appalachia. It could be, as long as it's not not just a Band-Aid, excuse the pun, but Band-Aid to fix something 
when really the, the solution, they're just kicking down the road. So hopefully these funds will help um, drive sustainability in those healthcare organizations. The other piece of news I have, the ARC just announced with their Ready Appalachia program, one of the tiers, they're calling it Ready Local Development Districts. So they're providing a total of $2 million in this program, but up to $100,000 for local development districts to help them hire staff and build capacity, which I feel like is an important part of any region, especially any regional organization. We talk about all the time, you know, how important leadership is in, regard, in, in small towns, and this will help with that. Yeah, man. I don't know where you get all this Appalachian news. You're, you're, you're on top of things today, man. I'm glad you uh, I'm glad you found that out because that's something that slipped by me. <laughs> Good stuff. I, I can I can sense a little sarcasm in the, in the, in your accent there. No, no, absolutely not. Both those things are, are very important in Appalachia. And I, I don't know. I, I mean, I just I, I didn't hear that. So yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad that I'm on this podcast so I can learn more about Appalachia. <laughs> Yeah, this uh, Ready Local Development Districts, it's actually a continuation of a pilot program that they have in partnership with EPA. But through that pilot program, they actually served 408 counties of the 423 in the ARC. And so this will be a continuation of that to help continue to build capacity throughout the region. Awesome. Okay. I kind of wanted to mention that because of the guests that we have today. Yeah, well, I was gonna, I was gonna do the same. I was gonna again thank you for let allowing me to learn about Appalachia, and I was just kind of thinking back to to growing up in Appalachia. You don't get a real opportunity to hear a, a ton about the history, and the guy that we're having on today is, you know, an Appalachian historian, and and who could tell it better than uh, the guest we're getting ready to have on? Yeah, he may be considered one of the most prolific. Appalachian historians that we have, Dr. Ron Eller, a longtime professor at the University of Kentucky, among, among other things. He was the director of the University of Kentucky Appalachian Center, which we'll get into, I'm sure, as we talk to him. But, you know, mentioning those two programs, especially the Ready Local Development Districts, I mean, his book, Uneven Ground, which we're going to talk about, talks about a lot of policy that was brought to the Appalachian region and a lot of failed policies over the last several decades in Appalachia to get us where we are today, which is the whole point of his book, Uneven Ground. So hopefully some of these programs that they're bringing about now, especially building capacity, especially working together as one, as a region, hopefully some of these policy implementations will help drive Appalachia forward. And in the next 20, 30, 40 years, it won't be so uneven. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to talking to Dr. Eller. So with, without further ado, let's get into it. All right, let's go. In the deep, dark hills of eastern Kentucky, that's the place where I traced my bloodline. And it's Oh, 
the episode today, we have a special guest, Dr. Ron Eller. He's an eighth generation Appalachian, originally from Southern West Virginia. He's a prolific Appalachian historian, now retired, but spent 40 years writing and teaching about the region. Among his professorship and teaching, he also spent 15 years as the director of the University of Kentucky Appalachian Center, where he coordinated efforts on a wide range of policy issues. He's published over 60 articles and reports, but probably most known for his book, Miners, Millhands, and Mountaineers, The Industrialization of the Appalachian South, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 1983. And one of his more recent books published in 2008, Uneven Ground, Appalachia Since 1945, which won the Weatherford Award as well as the V.O. Key Award. He has countless awards and accolades. We could have a whole episode on just his <laughs> accolades. I won't go into all of them, but I will mention he's led numerous federal and state committees on development. One in particular, he was the first chairman of the Kentucky Appalachian Commission. So Dr. Eller, it's an honor to have you on the program. We want to thank you for being here and I appreciate your time. Very happy to be here, Will. We'll kick it off with a question that we ask all our guests. Like most Appalachians are big on tradition. Neil and I, our family's big on tradition as well. And one of those traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. We usually have this big spread of appetizers, usually more appetizers than the actual meal. So we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? Well, you know, um, in our family, the, uh, the big dish that we always have when we have family reunion get-togethers, it's, it's always the sweets. It's the desserts. Everybody brings, you know, stack cakes and apple pies and, and, and all of that. But my wife makes a little appetizer, actually, that I enjoy. And that's a, it's, I don't know what it's called, but it's a, it's a little round sausage ball with uh, rice in it that, uh, that she makes. And uh, I, I always look forward to that and, and enjoy that. But we have, uh, you know, most of the traditional, my favorite meal is uh, soup, beans, and cornbread. Oh, which yeah. Is, you know, yeah. everybody from the mountains, <laughs> you know, I was raised on that. We had that just about every other night with fried potatoes and, and, and the like. So uh, uh, I get teased quite frequently by my kids on birthday occasions when we have all the kids and grandkids in. They're afraid we're going to have soup, beans, and cornbread for, the, <laughs> for my birthday dinner. So. <laughs> you're, you're, speak, you're speaking to my heart. Sounds like we were raised in the the same family, Dr. Elliott. (laughs) Well, one of the things I've learned, you know, I've been talking about the mountains in different ways uh, for almost 50 years, and uh, I've spoken in lots and lots of communities. And one of the things that I've learned is that the mountain experience is pretty universal within the region. You can tell your story and your experience and what you love. And, you know, 80% of the other people in the room that you're in uh, are saying, yes, that's my story too. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things I think that, that kind of holds mountain people together is the similarities that we all experience in the kinds of food we eat, the churches we go to, the, the things that we assume are, are kind of normal. That's one of the things that's always been close to my heart. Yeah, very well said. Can you just briefly maybe let our listeners know or talk about how and why you became an Appalachian historian? 
Well, when I was uh, growing up, there was no such thing as an Appalachian historian. In fact, there was no such thing as Appalachian history. I came out of the generation of the 60s. Uh, I was the first of my family ever to go to college. My family had experienced the out migration. We moved out to Ohio for a while and then moved back. My people had been in the mountains since way before the American Revolution. I uh, have early Cherokee ancestors and uh, German and Scotch-Irish and, and have always lived in the mountains. When I went to college, I kind of wondered, why was I the first one in my family ever to go to college? You know, we've been Americans for so long, and my people had had to originally uh, were from Western North Carolina, and they had had to leave the turn of the 20th century and migrated up into West Virginia to become coal miners, and my parents were both born in coal camps. And then my dad, after World War II, had to out-migrate again, you know, the typical Appalachian uh, story. And so I began to, to question when I went to college why I was the first one in my family ever to get that opportunity. And of course, back in the early 60s, uh, there just was nothing written about Appalachia except uh, a lot of the stereotypical stuff, you know, mountain people stayed in their cabins up on the hillside and drinking moonshine and shooting all the furners that went by, you know. But I had a, a, a real good professor, a young historian from Alabama, uh, who encouraged me when I was in college. I began working in, in child welfare in West Virginia, the job that my grandfather had helped me get, and was sort of shocked by some of the conditions that I, that I saw in my own community that I, I didn't really recognize before. So I wanted to, uh, I went in to see this professor and he said, and I said, I've enjoyed this course in Southern history that, that I've been taking, but I haven't read anything about my people. And I said, my people didn't live on plantations and own large numbers of, of slaves and, and all of that. And uh, he asked me where I was from and I told him, uh, and he said, well, instead of doing this term paper on plantations, why don't you look in to see what you can find about the history of your people in the South? And that got me started on a long journey uh, because I could find nothing written by professionally trained historians. And, and most of what I found was very stereotypical and condescending. I won't go into a great deal of the detail, but when I went to college uh, or, or to graduate school uh, at Chapel Hill to study Southern his, uh, history, uh, I began working on writing a book that tried to look at the whole his, history of the whole region. I had been very strongly moved by Harry Caudill's book in 1963 called Night Comes to the Cumberlands, which told the story of part of East Kentucky in a way that most Americans were not aware of. And I, when I read that, I said, well, that's my story, too. My people left the farm and went to work in, in company towns and uh, had limited opportunities for education. And, and so I wanted to see if that was the case throughout the region. When I worked on my dissertation at the University of North Carolina, that's what I, I did. Uh, did interviews throughout the region, got into lots of archival material that other people had ignored, and tried to write what the history of the region up till 1930 was from the history of someone who was from the region. And that produced miners, mill hands, and mountaineers. After that, uh, I was also determined that I didn't want to just write history. I wanted to try and do something that would help change things in the region 
and improve the life and conditions of my people. After all, I came out of the 1960s and the determination from the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and, and everything that young people had back then to try and make a difference. And I wanted not just to be a historian, but I wanted to find a way to apply my knowledge of history to making some better decisions in our public policies. After uh, teaching for about 10 years at a small college in Western North Carolina, I came to the University of Kentucky to uh, become the director of the Appalachian Center there. As director of the Appalachian Center, uh, I worked with uh, four governors and uh, several presidents and lots of local policymakers uh, on different policy issues, trying to bring my knowledge of history into the public policy realm. When I left the Appalachian Center, I also was determined that I needed to find a way to get that into print. Uh, at that time, there was no history of what had happened in Appalachia since 1945, no history of the war on poverty and the stories surrounding the war on poverty. And that then produced uneven ground with the idea that I would combine my knowledge as a historian and my practical experience working with policymakers over the years into trying to tell the story of what's happened in the mountains since 1945. Part of the reason why we wanted to have you on the episode was to dive into uneven ground a little bit and where we are okay. today. But first, I had a, had a few questions. A lot of people speak often of Appalachia being seen as the other America. We spoke earlier about regions having much more similarities than challenges, and you, you have often suggested that Appalachians' challenges are not different than other places, that we are all Appalachians. Can you just uh, briefly just let our listeners know what you mean by that? Well, the original and still quite popular image nationally of Appalachia is that it is somehow different from other parts of America, that it has, uh, we're a strange land inhabited by a peculiar people. And when I went to college, the assumptions were always, well, it's their culture. You know, these strange hillbillies uh, don't think in the same way that other Americans do. And, and that's why they're back. Uh, and that's why they, they live in poverty and the conditions. So it's either their culture or the other explanation that was popular is that it's the mountains themselves. You know, they, they live in isolation from the rest of the country because the mountains isolate you. Obviously, those two explanations, uh, neither of them, I think, are, are very accurate. I've traveled all over the world and seen many, many mountainous areas that are much more prosperous <laughs> than Appalachia is. And in fact, one can travel throughout Appalachia and find communities that are more prosperous than other communities. So it's not necessarily the geography of the place, nor is it, uh, you know, looking down and you applying stereotypes to people. What I found when I wrote, began looking into the history of the region and wrote Miners, Millhands, and Mountaineers is that the mountains experienced the same kind of modernization and industrialization that the rest of the country did. Our families left their farms and went to work in industrial jobs, coal mines, textile mills, uh, uh, sawmills, and, and other kinds of industrial jobs, just like other Americans. But somehow our story ended up a little bit different than other places. So I wanted to understand, one, we had the same kinds of experiences in some respects, but we ended up in a different kind of place. What was it that pushed us into a different kinds of, of place? 
And what I mean by the fact that we are not the other America and that we are all Appalachians is that the same kinds of injustices, inequalities, narrow-sighted planning that produced Appalachia is the same kind of thing that produced the poor communities, uh, 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 Black communities in the Deep South and Native American communities uh, in the Northwest and other places. We are all it, uh, products of the same system. It's important that we understand that. We may have distinct experiences within that system, but it's very important that we not see ourselves as somehow so different that we have to do things in a different kind of way. That's a great point. And, and kind of to that point, we ground this podcast on place and perspective. Place is really important to us. Place really matters as far as we're, we're concerned. And while, you know, place can be a barrier for change, it also connects us as a region, kind of gives us a purpose. Do you think it's stronger in Appalachia, that sense of place than, than other regions? And, and does it give us that purpose? And how has it changed over the years? I think that uh, place was very important in all of rural America. Again, if you go to rural populations, uh, Native American communities, uh, even Tex-Mex communities in the Southwest, and even Black communities in, in parts of the Black Belt South, you'll find people are tied and connected to their place, to their region. And certainly those of us who come from the mountains have always been that way. The mountains have always been very special. What has happened over the years as we have, quote unquote, modernized, as so many of our people have had to leave their place and out-migrate, that sense of place has, has gradually, I think, deteriorated. I find that it's strongest among the first-generation out-migrants who leave the mountains. When my dad left West Virginia in the 50s to find work in Ohio, we would go back home every other weekend. For my dad and for me and my brothers and sisters, our place, our connection that provided meaning for us was always in West Virginia. But for our children who have fewer of those experiences with the land, fewer of those experiences with family connections and things, that sense of place tends to weaken. And I think that's, a, again, one of those national phenomena. That, that occurs nationally. Mountain people, however, and I'm convinced it's a combination of our strong connection to family and sense of responsibility to family and our strong connection to a landscape that is uneven to the mountains themselves. That sense of place is, uh, is unusually strong. It's not unique. We share that with lots of other people, but and our sense of the mountainness, uh, ours is, is a distinct kind of thing that holds, does hold us together. Neil and I talk all the time about, well, well I do. So every time I drive over the, the river and see that Kentucky sign, there's this relief that comes off my shoulders because I know I'm going home. <laughs> That's right. When we were, we out migrated to Ohio, we, we moved to Akron for a while. And uh, this was before interstates. I was the oldest in the family. My father was a barber. On Saturday night, every other Saturday night, we would leave when Dad closed up the shop about six o'clock and get on the road on uh, U.S. Route 21. And it was a nine hour drive from Akron down to Beckley. And it was my job to keep 
the, uh, my dad awake all night long as the rest of my brothers and sisters and mother, everybody in the car would, would sleep. And so I remember crossing that Ohio River. And at that point, dad would always tune in the country music station. He would always either get uh, Nashville or Wheeling. And we would drive through the mountain listening to the old style country music. And that was part of my growing up that I'm sure helped to instill in me the sense that, you know, I was not from Ohio. I was from West Virginia. We were simply living in Ohio because we had to make a living there for a while. Yeah, very good point. I I mentioned your book, Uneven Ground, and we want to dive into that. We're not going to dive into it in detail. We we could have a year-long podcast on just, just that book alone. But we have a lot of economic development organizations on this show. We focus a lot on entrepreneurship, uh, on, on economic development. But Uneven Ground really focuses on the failed public policies over the last 40 years in mm-hmm. Appalachia, or when you wrote the book. Not to belabor those, but some of the keys, growth and development's not always the same thing. Uh, We need to focus on fair, secure, and sustainable development. Urban models don't always work in rural areas. Uh, Land use matters. Extraction has eroded our land and our economy. Uh, Environment and culture are connected. Leadership, creativity, and civic partnership are essential for successful communities. Community-based strategies are key. So those are just some of the things that I pulled from the book. That's a great summary. (laughs) <laughs> well, that, that was the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's a lot to unpack there. Like I said, we won't go into each one of those in detail. But since the since writing of the book, do you now see and we don't Neil and I don't really like to talk about Eastern Kentucky, talk about Appalachia as having hope, because when we focus on Appalachia, while we do touch on the issues, we like to talk about the opportunities rather than the challenges. Anytime anyone from the outside asks us about Appalachia, they always talk about the challenges. We like to focus on the opportunities. But do you see hope in Appalachia, especially in central Appalachia, especially going into the future? I think the hope in the region lies in its young people. Uh, One of the things that has been most encouraging to me in the last 30 years is to see a generation of young people emerge in the region who, one, have a very strong commitment to the region, a better understanding of the region's history and our challenges, and a much stronger educational base. Now, not all of those young people have been able to remain in the mountains. An awful lot of our educated young people have had to outmigrate, have had to leave. But What is encouraging is that they never forget where they're from, and they always are wanting to uh, affect public policy that will help to move things in a different kind of direction. I see an awful lot of young people who determine for hell or high water, they're going to stay home. And if you find, if you look in small towns in Whitesburg and uh, in Hazard and in uh, Pikeville, uh, and in in towns up and down the region, you're going to find a cluster of small people who are running small businesses, who are thinking differently. And while they may not have a great deal of political power at this point, they're beginning to to emerge and to develop develop coalitions. You would be 
uh, surprised at the number of small organizations that exist all over the mountains, from Western North Carolina to West Virginia, of people who are trying to make a difference in their communities. And these are young people, young people who went to college, who, who uh, began reading a lot of the scholarship that has been done over the last 40 years on the region, uh, I think are making a difference. I think that's where the hope in the mountains lies. It's tragic that so many of our young people still have to leave. It's tragic that many of our young people aren't able to finish college and go back home and have and struggle to find to find employment. But it is very encouraging to me to see that there is a new leadership base, I believe, beginning to emerge in the region. Yeah, and I feel like we've had several of those young people on this show doing some incredible work. You know, you mentioned in the book, community-based strategies are really important to define that kind of, you don't need to recruit from the outside to help, but you can change from within. We've had a lot of uh, organizations, co-field development in West Virginia, the Foundation for Appalachia, Ohio, Foundation for Appalachia, Kentucky, that are based on that, building from the ground up or building from within. I know Cofield Development focuses on social enterprises, and their motto is building from the ground up. You mentioned the young people. Do you see this systemic change happening in Appalachia? Well, I, I, I see parts of it beginning to happen. Now, one of the things about systemic change is that what that means is that we need to affect the political system and young people need to become much more active, I think, in running for political office and playing that very critical role. Young people, these young people need to change institutions, our healthcare institutions, our educational institutions, uh, churches uh, and, and other kinds of kinds of institutions, as well as begin to ha- beginning to have a voice in the public policy decisions that are often made by external units, whether those are state government agencies or the federal government. Uh, for example, the Appalachian Regional Commission. The Appalachian Regional Commission has never adequately, I think, played a role at building communities from the bottom up and hearing the voices of those communities and and helping develop policy in that direction. The commission was originally designed to do just that, but because of uh, changes at the national level politically, because of, uh, of a, a lack of, uh, of adequate funding, that long-term community-based planning process has really been truncated in the region and has cut off opportunities for citizens to become involved. And I think that's one of the things that, that we need to pay a lot more attention uh, to. That's one of the great failures of the war on poverty is that it didn't follow through on generating citizen-based participation in their future. Just to mention the ARC, we had federal co-chair Manchin on an episode Mm -hmm. and she spoke to that exactly of how important it was from building from within, building from the ground up. I know they have a new program, the Arise program. Right. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but the Appalachian Regional Initiative for Stronger Economies. Essentially, it's a federal policy to get the region to work as one, to get Mm -hmm. them, you know, you, you can't, get the grants without working across state lines. Do you think that collaborative process is important? You mentioned building from the ground up. I, I, I think it's absolutely critically important. And in fact, I, I have seen in the last 30 years significant changes in 
policy from the Appalachian Regional Commission in that direction. Back in the 80s and 90s, the focus of the commission was really to get outside industry into Appalachia and to promote uh, selling the region outside and trying to get runaway industries from one place into, into the mountains. Beginning in the late 1990s, you began to have uh, a lot of leaders at the Appalachian Regional Commission, uh, Chairman White, for example, who, who began to say, look, that is not the only way to develop communities. We need to place greater emphasis on small business development, greater emphasis on building internally within communities. And the commission began to put more emphasis on, on, on that side of its mission. And I think that's what we see now at the commission. You have a new staff, a new generation. The challenge, of course, is getting enough resources to really make it work. Uh, it's one thing to talk about promoting small business development. It's one thing to talk about uh, and encourage community participation and, and citizen engagement. It's a whole nother issue to actually get those things done. And that requires boots on the ground. It requires resources and money. And while the Appalachian Regional Commission has more resources today in this administration than it has had in several decades, it still does not have the resources adequate to address some of the persisting problems that the region faces. And I think that's been evident with the recent floods. You know, we are going to be lucky to, to be able to rebuild some of these communities, but to, to move, help move these communities into a new economy and new housing, I mean, we're going to need a lot more resources than what has been available up to this point. That, that's an incredible point. Ever since the floods, we've talked about them on, on essentially every episode, and especially in regards to affordable housing and to housing in general, or getting that back. But you mentioned in the book, you, you know, your your book, Uneven Ground, is probably even more relevant today than when, than when you wrote it, to be honest. <laughs> but in the book, you know, you mentioned basic structures were miss, missing, like roads, schools, public right. services. I wanted to ask you about now that, you know, when you wrote the book, now broadband is a major issue that exactly. is in the region. What do you think about broadband today and, and in relation to what you mentioned in the book? Well, broadband is exactly the same uh, in exactly the same place as the transportation system was in the late 1960s and, and early 1970s in the region. And what we chose to do was for the federal government back in the 1960s and 70s to build uh, a series of arterial highways in the region. Uh, some of them were four lanes and other uh, highways, the Appalachian Regional Highway System. And, and that was to connect, help connect the region to uh, markets and other places uh, outside and to relieve because the states of the burden uh, of paying for some of those roads because the money would come from the federal government. Originally, the idea was that if the federal government helped to build some of these arterial roads, then the states could put more resources into secondary roads and improving the internal communication system and infrastructure system within the region. What eventually happened, of course, was that the states, increasingly state legislators, began to argue, well, the federal government's paying for highways in Appalachia, so why do we need to put more resources into Appalachia? They're getting the highways, so let's put the resources, our state resources for highways, into 
other portions of the state. And as a result, the secondary road system and secondary infrastructure system, public water, uh, public sewer system, et cetera, continue to deteriorate in the interior places in, in the mountains. So we got you know, a few nice arterial highways, but you get off of those arterial highways and you have still major infrastructure problems. So that was one of the consequences of short-sighted thinking, I think, in the 1960s and 70s, and special interest thinking at that point. The same thing is true of the internet today. We can extend internet to a few concentrated centers, but the areas that most desperately need access to internet for to build a new economy are the rural areas. That's what concerns me the most. We still have large rural areas in the mountains that do not have access to the internet. Uh, I have a cabin in Western North Carolina uh, that we spent a lot of our retirement time at, and I can't get on the internet there. Now, sometimes that's a good thing. Yeah, I was getting ready to say. (laughs) It's hard to live in modern America. And if I were a young person trying to make a difference, I couldn't live without without access to the, the internet today. And you find that pattern throughout rural communities. And so we need to be thinking about how we connect our growth centers with our surrounding rural areas in ways that we can we can provide for a regional economy that supports each other. And the internet is absolutely central to that. We can't stop with just making internet connections to our growth centers. You, you mentioned before, even throughout Appalachia, there's some communities that are more successful than others. And Neil and I talk all the time about a lot of the times in those communities that are more successful, it boils down to leadership and who is yeah, leading exactly. those communities. So we've had an episode with the leadership uh, programs in a majority of the states within Appalachia, the directors of those programs to talk about the importance of capacity building. How important is capacity building and where are we today? Well, I, I don't want to, uh, to sound like I'm going to be coming down on the coal industry, but the history of coal in central Appalachia, in East Kentucky, Southern West Virginia, where I'm from, and Southwest Virginia, the history of coal in, cent- in central Appalachia has severely limited our internal capacity to build alternative leadership and alternative visions because it provided jobs, uh, the political connections between the industry and local politics. It so dominated, as, as is frequently the case throughout the world, when you have single industry focuses in communities. And that ends up being one of our challenges in the coal fields today is how do we broaden our capacity in leadership and institutions and the quality of our services and things to begin to move beyond the traditional coal economy that has so shaped uh, shaped our past. Now, I I think coal is going to continue to be part of our larger picture, but in order for the mountains to develop and move into a new economy, we need to build a, a different kind of a stronger economy. I think we're the decline in demand for coal, the decline in the fact that uh, so much of our coal in central Appalachia has already been mined, the decline in the, in the role that coal is playing is going to be good for the region because I think that, that we're going to see these young people that uh, we've talked about before moving into and filling that 
that void and thinking in new and different kinds of ways. And we're already seeing that. Very new attitudes toward uh, alternative energies. Uh, even 15, 20 years ago, you couldn't talk about wind energy or, or solar energy at a, at a public meeting in East Kentucky. You right. just couldn't talk about it. Uh, but now it's, a, it's an important part of the conversation. Times change and understanding the history of where we were helps us to make decisions about where we can go. Back in the 1970s, I remember participating in many meetings in which uh, we would have coal operators at the, at the table and the issue of absentee land ownership would be brought up. And the fact that so much of our land in the mountains, in some counties, 90% of the surface land still owned by absentee, not necessarily coal companies, but absentee land companies. It was a no-no to talk about absentee land ownership at that point. You couldn't even bring the topic up. Today, it's sort of a given fact, and it's accepted by lots and lots of policymakers. Now, we still not develop appropriate policies for, for getting beyond that as a problem. You know, how do we turn land that has already been mined, already, you know, been extracted, how do we turn that into public land or, or, or change the use of that land in some ways? At least today, we're way beyond that absentee land ownership discussions are, are something we don't want to engage in. And it's part of the dialogue, part of the discussion. I'm sure you're familiar with the Build Back Better Challenge, right. challenge grant. Uh, have you seen that to be exactly what you're talking about, a, a good idea? Or is it just throwing money at a specific policy agenda to try to see if it works? I think it's too early to evaluate that at, at, at this point. Like so many of the War on Poverty programs, they were great ideas. The problem became in the details of how they got carried out and how they got implemented, whether or not there were really enough resources there to, uh, to make a difference. I think it's tremendous, uh, some of the suggestions about how to use a previously mined land, how to use reclaimed land. That's exactly the conversation that we need to engage in. Whether or not special interests take control of, of those decisions and whether or not those decisions uh, are connected to uh, the local community and the needs that the local community might have. That yet it, it yet to be seen. And so that's an, a great example, I think, Will, of, of how the more we understand how things evolved in the past, the better equipped we're going to be to help not make the same mistakes we've made before, but move in some, some positive directions. In the 1960s, we didn't have that history. Yeah. And one of the things that uh, over the last 30 to 40 years, the Appalachian Studies community, the Appalachian scholars, have been able to do is to document that and make that available to current policymakers. And I think that's a, another one of those real strong, hopeful things. We value our culture much more today because our colleges and universities tend to value it. We have Appalachian festivals and, and we value our music we, we, in ways that that wasn't the case back in the 1960s. And I think that's a very strong indication that, that we can move in some new directions. With that being said, we've talked a lot about the history of, of, of the region and how far we've come in the past 30, 40 years. And uh, you being a, a person who's studied that growth. And I, I would just like to know your opinion on 
where do you see this region going in the next 30 to 40 years? And could you just give our listeners insight on your feelings of, you know, we've come a long way, but now we've talked about our people and our people developing and, and creating new things. But where do you see this region on a, uh, as it compares to the rest of the country over the next 15 or 20 years? Well, I, I wish I had a crystal ball. You'll be able to able to able to predict that. I think that uh, a lot of of what happens in the future does, in fact, depend upon young people like yourself and the decisions that you make, and whether or not you one want to value community or whether you want to look out solely after yourself. I think that has been a a constant struggle, not only in the mountains, but in all of America for most of our history. What responsibilities do I have to other people? What responsibilities do I have to my community versus how can I get as much as I can for me now? And that tension, of course, has led some people to be exploiters, some people to leave and never look back. And it has led other people to stay and fight and live a life that may not be as profitable and rich <laughs> as someone, someone else. But that's been a tension. And I think that tension is continuing to take place in the mountains today. And that's why I see a lot, I am, am hopeful. I see a lot of these young people who are well-educated, who could be successful just about anywhere they want to be, but they're, they, they make the decision that they're going to stay and they're going to live perhaps at a, a monetary level that's a little less than what other places, but they're going to make a difference in their community. That's encouraging to me to see that. Now, if we can continue to fuel that enthusiasm, continue to hold out, I think, a vision of what can what our communities can be, then I'm very hopeful for the region. If we give in to what I think is sadly a, an increasingly dominant cultural attitude in America of looking out for oneself and trying to accumulate as much as you can, then I think the mountains are in trouble. I think young people will continue to have to leave. Uh, so it, it's a value thing to me. One of the things that I have learned about public policy and about the issue of development is that it's always it's, it's always a political exercise. But because it's a political exercise, it's rooted in one's values. What do you value? Do you want your community to look just like Baltimore or, or Cleveland or, or, or some other place like that? Or do you have a different vision for your community, which could mean, mean something very different? And these value conflicts are ones that have to be have to be worked out. And I'm very much encouraged to see, again, of these organizations of young people from the region beginning to ask those questions. That that's nice. That's nice. Well, Dr. Eller, I think you said what all great coaches out there uh, <laughs> try to get out of their teams. It's about we, not me. That's right. So, uh, well said in the perspective of, of uh, looking at Appalachia. So if we can develop some more Appalachians who are concerned with us as a whole and not as a uh, me mentality, I think Appalachia can become what we all hope and desire for it to be. You see, I think, Neil, that that's part of, of our culture. That's part of our tradition is that 
you have a responsibility to your family, to your neighbors, to help out. And if we can sustain that sense of community and sense of responsibility to others, then I think we 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 have some opportunities. Uh, if we give in to you know everybody be all that they can be as individuals, then uh, yes, I think you're right. Uh, it, it, it's what every good coach tells his team. <laughs> I've never been sure words spoken by a great Appalachian man. So uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate that that mindset and that attitude. In tradition of questions that we always ask the guests that we have on, I, I would like to ask a couple of questions as it pertains to the area. But it's always interesting to hear what the answer is to this question. But for you, all your experience and all your time in this region, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word Appalachia? When I hear the word Appalachia, I think of tight communities, a strong sense of responsibility, people who are down to earth, people who are willing to work and know the meaning of work. You know, I think of I think of music and and mountain music. And if you look at mountain music, which they call bluegrass now, but if you look at mountain music, you know, it's a team effort. And you seldom have one person who sticks out. Everybody gets their chance to play, you know, in a string band and take the lead. Uh, And that's that sense of everybody's, you know, ultimately just as good as everybody else. And everybody deserves to be to be involved in. And it's a collective kind of effort. So for me, the term Appalachia has never been a negative term, as it it sometimes was in the 1960s and the national news media uh, made it out to be just people who live in poverty and, and, and backwardness and are uneducated. Those things, you know, it's never, Appalachia has never been that to me. Yes, we, like lots of other people and other communities, have our problems and challenges with poverty and undereducation and that. We also have a tremendous uh, strength in our culture and traditions. We've had to overcome issues like racism and gender bias and all kinds of of things, just like everybody else has. But we're finding ways to do that. We're finding ways to overcome those deficiencies and continue to build a strong culture based upon a sense of who we are and our relationship to the land. You know, at the end of the day, though, it's like Alabama wrote, right? Play me some mountain music, baby. That's right. That's right. That's right. And, you know, of course, my family comes out of a very strong musical tradition and music has always been part of my family, whether it was gospel or uh, country or, or bluegrass. Uh, we always, always did that. And it was something that tended to bind us together rather than driving us apart. And I think that's an important, important yeah. part of our culture. Another question that we ask all our guests, just where do you call home? What makes it home for you? What makes it unique? That's a that's a great question. If you press me, home is still West Virginia, between Beckley and and Hinton down in Summers County, down on the river. You know, of course, that's we all consider ourselves to be home to be where we grew up. But as I have matured and I'm you know almost seventy five now, a home is in the mountains. I mean, I I I get a different sense of feeling. In retirement, we built a uh, retirement home in Western North Carolina, just inside the Tennessee border, way down deep in the mountains. That's my little little part of a uh, part of heaven, and we go there, and it's the mountains themselves. 
increasingly I recognize that, uh, you know, I could live a lot of different places as long as the ground is uneven in a different sense of the yeah, term. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a couple quick questions I wanted to ask you. Sure. So you mentioned soup beans, but what's your favorite cornbread or biscuits? Oh, that's just hard to, that's hard to say. I, I, you know, I like, I love cornbread with a big slice of butter and I love cornbread actually with soup beans. Do you crumble it in the soup beans? Yeah, you crumble it. Well, you know, now my wife teases me. My wife is raised in Charleston. She teases me because I mix my cornbread, soup beans, and fried potatoes all up into one thing. <laughs> and I argue where they're going to end up in the same place anyway. And <laughs> I don't separate the, that. You know, if I had to press, you know, I would never give up a good biscuit. Biscuits and, and soup beans uh, are almost as good as cornbread and soup beans. Yeah, so. I don't think there's a wrong answer there. <laughs> um, best or favorite fishing spot in Appalachia? <laughs> well, I'm a big fisherman. I have spent all of my life fishing uh, in the mountains. Now, I'm a little too old now to be able to walk around the, the streams like I used to. I slip on the rocks and things. But probably my favorite fishing place is the Cranberry River, just uh, outside of uh, Richwood, West Virginia. It goes deep into the Monongahela National Forest, and you can get on this forest road and walk for five or six miles up the side of the, of the Cranberry River and fish for trout. And it's not only beautiful and quiet, the fishing is great. Uh, I grew up fishing on the Greenbrier River in southern West Virginia there in Summers County. And I still enjoy enjoy that. But uh, the Greenbrier has developed a lot since I was a boy. And so I, I'd have to probably say the Cranberry. Nice. We, we heard, Neil and I heard that you had some woodworking skills. What's, <laughs> what's the favorite, what's your favorite thing that you've ever made? I made a, uh, a cherry table for my wife a few years ago. I'm, I'm very proud of it. It's a beautiful cherry top, but it has inlaid uh, walnut uh, on the ends and, and on the legs. Uh, and that's, that's uh, one of my nice pieces. I also made a guitar, Ooh. which I'm very proud of. That's probably the most challenging thing I've ever undertaken to make. It took me a year to make, to make the guitar. And uh, it's uh, a piece that I'm quite proud of. Uh, I wish I could play it as well as it looks. <laughs> um, I guess that's what you do in retirement, right? You become that's a right. When I retired, I decided I needed something to keep me busy. And I, uh, my family, the men in my family always did stuff with wood. And uh, my brother was a cabinet maker. I'll never be half as good as my brother was, but uh, I, I like to piddle around with it. And I like the quality of the grain and, and using your hands. Nice. I guess that comes from my mountain background, too. The reason why we started this podcast was really to dispel some of the misconceptions about Appalachia. So if you could just pick one, what is the biggest misconception about Appalachia? That all Appalachians are alike. You know, one of the things that as, and I've talked about our culture and our strengths and how similar we are, but Appalachia is a quite diverse place, especially today. And I, and and as someone interested in economic development, you know that diversity encourages creativity and economic growth. And so you want to encourage diversity. And the one thing that most of the rest of America doesn't recognize is that Appalachia is a quite diverse place. We are diverse racially, ethnically, lots of different kinds of people. Now, 
the interesting thing is that we we are all brought together in some way. One of my best friends grew up in Harlan County. His name is Bill Turner. Bill and I used to go fishing all the time together. We're big fishing buddies. But uh, Bill grew up in Lynch in Harlan County and just recently wrote a sort of memoir of growing up in Harlan County. And you ought to talk to Yeah, Neil's got it. Yes, Harlan Renaissance. We had him on the show. Bill Bill talks of does a superb job of describing the black community in Harlan County, and of course Bill and I constantly talk about how similar our experiences are, and how you know we're both mountain, and and our families are so similar and uh, and yet diverse, and we need to take pride in this, uh, in the ethnic and racial diversity that exists in our region, because that's where one of what where our strengths are. It's the outsiders who have tried to put us all in one one yeah. place and suggest that we're all the same. How did we let Dr. Turner move to Texas? <laughs> well, it, it, all of his children moved to Texas, if you know <laughs> that. I, I, miss, I miss Bill immensely because uh, I don't have anybody to go fishing with. And I've got a whole bag full of fishing stories of me and Bill Turner. I had two more quick questions. If you could pick one thing, what do you love most about the region? Boy, that's a tough question because I've spent my whole life loving the region and loving who we are and trying to understand the history. I suppose it's the land. The mountains themselves just do something for me. You know, without the mountains, I think there's no Appalachia. The landscape, the, the water, the, the woods, I, I love being in the woods. Uh, it's the land, and that's what I, I meant when I talked about there is a connection between our culture and the landscape, the environment that we desperately have to recognize and understand. And if we lose that environment, we're going to lose so much that's critically important to our culture. Yeah, great answer. Last question. And, and again, we thank you so much for your time. We, we appreciate it. This has been... Oh, I've enjoyed this immensely. You talked about overcoming the structural inequalities of class, race, gender, greed. I guess today, are we still uneven? We're still uneven, yes. I think it's important to recognize we've made significant progress from what we were five decades ago, let alone a hundred years ago. We've made progress. We need to recognize that. I don't think it's just the mission of what Appalachia should be about. That's, you know, our whole American society should continue to be about that. That's deeply rooted in our history. We've come a long, long ways. We've still got a long ways to go yet. Well, Dr. Eller, uh, again, thank you for the time. We, we greatly appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. I've enjoyed it immensely. Thanks so Good much. Good luck to you. Will, man, great stuff from Dr. Eller tonight. I uh, really enjoyed listening to him. I think I could just talk to him for hours, to be honest. What a great teacher and also a man full of wisdom. So I really appreciate him coming on the show. No doubt, so much knowledge. Like you said, we we could have had a year's worth of episodes just with him. (laughs) You know, in the interview, we talked about leadership, the importance of leadership. Well, he talked about being part of the Kentucky Appalachian Task Force. He actually helped to write 
a plan in the 90s called Communities of Hope. It was a plan for Appalachian, Kentucky. But just looking back at it, I mean, there's so much in it that is relevant today. It just goes to show that, you know, we can we can devise these plans. We can make these strategies. We can define policy. But if the leadership's not in place to follow through on some of those actions, then it's just a plan. It just sits there on the shelf like a lot of plans do. I just wanted to point out, you know, all the work that that has been done in the past in Appalachia and, and how leadership and capacity building can help carry us towards the future, as Dr. Eller mentions. One of the quote he has in Communities of Hope It says, we are here to address the issue of ownership. The future is here in our communities with us. Just points out that, you know, building from within, building our communities by what we have, we have the the tools here. Just goes to show the ARC funds that we talked about in the beginning going towards capacity building, the ready local development district. Just shows how important it is in regards to capacity building, in regards to leadership, and in regards to driving Appalachia forward. I just wanted to point that out. He's great to listen to, isn't he? Yeah. Maybe he was a storyteller in his past life. I don't know. But it just uh, through the years of teaching, he just has become a natural storyteller. I would love to hear his fishing stories. I would love to hear just stories of him growing up. He should write a book about that. Yeah, for sure. If you haven't got uneven ground yet, though, I would recommend grabbing that book. Um, Getting back to the Kentucky Rising concert with Dwight Yoakam, when Dr. Eller was talking about traveling back with his dad, listening to country music on the radio, well, he was talking about traveling back on Route 21. Dwight Yoakam has a song, Route 23, one of my favorite songs that he sings. Talks about riding back on Route 23. If you've never heard it, take a listen, but it, it, it just made me think of that when Dr. Eller was talking about that talking about traveling back on Route 21 to back home in West Virginia. Again, very appreciative of his time tonight. Absolutely. This was a long episode, but we felt like this was a really important episode that really dug at the heart of Appalachia, the heart of the history, but also the future of Appalachia and what's important and how we can best go forward in regards to uh, Appalachia in regards to equitable policy and keeping it even throughout the region. Yep. With that being said, Will, I know you got to add biz of the week for me. I do. We talked about Dr. Eller's amazing woodworking skills. (laughs) After retirement, he's become quite the woodworker And we wanted to highlight, you know, there are amazing arts throughout the region, people that work with their hands, a lot of crafters. We wanted to highlight one in the region. It's called Appalachian Cabinetry and Woodworking in Morristown, Tennessee. It's all locally cut, milled, and made by this company at the Morristown, Tennessee facility. That's the Appalachian Cabinetry and woodworking. If you need some cabinetry, if you need something, anything commercial or residential in in your kitchen, in your bathroom, any renovations, check this company out. They do some great work. And like I said, it's all locally made. Yep. You can visit them over in uh, Morristown on uh, Andrew Johnson Highway or just go to their website, Will, AppalachianCabinetry.com. Great episode with an amazing, prolific historian 
on the Appalachian region. Yes, sir. Hope you guys will uh, spread the word, get this out to any of your friends that might be interested in learning a little bit more about Appalachia. So just direct them to our our site, our uh, Instagram, our Twitter, our Facebook, wherever they listen to podcasts, Appalachian Meets World is there. Absolutely. All right. I guess um, we can end it like we usually do. Till next time. Peace. They learned reading, writing, Route 23 to jobs laid away the city factory. They didn't know that that old highway lead them to a world of misery. Have you ever been down Kentucky Way, say South Prestonsburg? Have you ever been up in Holler? Have you ever heard about the man called his life away? Digging that black coal in those dark mines, those dark mines. If you had, you might just understand The reason that they left it all behind They learned reading and writing Route 23 to jobs laid away In the city's factory They learned reading and writing Roads to the north, to the luxury comfort Old miner and fall. They thought reading, writing, Route 23 hard to take them to the good life they had never seen. They didn't know that that old highway lead them to a world of misery. Kids in the car after work on Friday night. Pull up in a holler about 2 a.m. The light's still burning bright. To those mountain folks set up that late to hold those little grandkids in their arms. In their arms. Yet I'm proud to say that I've been blessed. Touched by their sweet hillbilly charm. They learned reading, writing, Route 23 to the job to lay it away in the city factory. They learned reading, writing, roads to the north, to the luxury, comfort a coal miner can't afford. They thought reading, writing, Route 23, hard to take them. They had never seen They didn't know that that old highway Lead them to a world of misery Yeah, it turns out